Happy, thank you so much. That was fantastic. And for those of you who are relatively new, um, usually uh, Alan Hart, our worship pastor, is leading in the service, but he's out, his whole family's out, John's out, and I'm going to give them an excuse because uh, John Verbanek is getting married uh, this afternoon. So that's pretty cool. You know, I'm really disappointed how quickly you responded to affirm them skipping church. We'll talk about that later. Uh, but no, it's going to be super cool. And, uh, and if you've met Mary Lance, she's fantastic. And so, but anyways, thank you, Abby. That was really just great worship leading uh, this morning. That was, uh, that was so good. Appreciate that so much. Uh, just real quick, and just in terms of, of announcements, uh, Wade Denton over here is on the, basically the state championship baseball team. They won on Saturday, so that's pretty cool. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I feel like I had something to do with it. I've been speaking truth into his life for, for years, and, but it was still mainly you, Wade. We just want you to know, still mainly you. Uh, but no, we, we're so proud of you and what you've been doing. And uh, I, I did get to see the semifinals, and basically he saved the game. He was the relief pitcher, which is pretty cool. Also, he scored the, uh, the first run, basically the go-ahead, in, the go-ahead run in the finals game, which is pretty cool. It was 2-1. to one. So, so he scored half their points. That's pretty cool. On top of that, he just set the... Georgetown High School record in terms of ERA for a pitcher. There's never been a pitcher in Georgetown High School's history that's had a higher ERA than Wade. Now that's cool. That's cool. And I know I actually didn't teach you anything because I can't throw a ball faster than about 35 miles an hour. And that's the, that's the truth. It's crazy. Uh, one more thing that I want to bring to your attention. Our church is not sponsoring this, but... Grace Academy is sponsoring it, and I think this is really, really neat. Tomorrow at 7 o'clock in the historic sanctuary across the street, Carl Truman is going to be here. That may, that may not mean much to anybody here, but he is a world-class theologian, has written several books with regards to Christianity and culture. He's going to be here giving a, a, a talk on identity politics and how did our nation get from where it was to where it is and how do we respond Christianly, theologically to everybody identifying however they want to identify. How do you, how do you respond to that? This is incredibly relevant and we have really a world-class leader on the subject. So if you are at all able to be here Tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock in the historic sanctuary across the street, uh, you'll want to be here. It, it is, it's going to be a top-shelf talk. I am not kidding. And if you find it not to be top-shelf, we'll give you your money back because it's free. But Grace Academy, they do these speaker uh, series every so often. And so Grace Academy is the one bringing them in here, and I, I'd really love to see you there. I know we have several people from some other churches that are making a point to be here, and so I would not at all be surprised if it's so full that we have to relocate over here. So 7 o'clock tomorrow. Um, we've been in the Gospel of Luke for several, for several weeks now, and uh, today we're kind of coming to something along the lines of, of identity. It's kind of interesting when it comes to identity how people can 
look a certain way, but maybe not be a certain thing. Uh, there was, in 1971, this commercial that was produced by, by America Beautiful, I think it's the Beautify America or America Beautiful Foundation. And it was this really famous commercial in 1971 that featured this Native American who was paddling down this junk-infested river, and he's pictured in the midst of trash and smog and and pollution, and then the camera zooms in on the very sad face, and there's a tear running down the cheek. It's it's known as the crying Indian commercial. It's been it's been judged to be one of the top 50 commercials of all time. And the gentleman who's playing the role of this Native American, his he goes by the public name or went by the public name of uh, Iron Eyes Cody. But the commercial wasn't his first foray into acting, okay? He was actually kind of famous before this. He was the noble Indian in a lot of these cowboy and Indian movies, these westerns. He starred alongside of people like Ronald Reagan and, uh, you know, the, the Duke. He was also in, I think, a movie with uh, Roy Rogers. I mean, very, very famous guy. In fact, he was so famous, he got his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. No, Iron Eyes Cody. At a, at a time, he was the most famous and the most beloved Native American in all of Hollywood and basically all of the United States of America. But the strange thing is, there were some other Native Americans who were also actors that were a little bit, I don't know, put off by him. They, they found some things to be a little fishy. One of them was a Native American actor, Jay Silverheels, who was Tonto in The Lone Ranger. In fact, I couldn't remember the guy's name in the first service, and there were two people that called it out. I mean, they knew who Tonto was, okay? So it was a big deal. And then Running Deer was this Native American stuntman who was in virtually every Native American uh, Cowboys and Indians movie. And they both kind of had a problem with Iron Eyes Cody that says something just doesn't feel right. So a reporter went to the hometown of Iron Eyes Cody in Louisiana, and sure enough, the reporter found out that Iron Eyes Cody was full-blooded Italian. Both of his parents were full-blooded Italians. And you wonder, how in the world did he keep up the image for so long? Well, because Hollywood... And all of the, basically, the, the companies that were profiting off of his image, they had a vested interest in keeping up the false image. And, of course, the people in the town didn't say anything because they were proud of their hometown boy and they wanted to help him succeed. And so there was just this, you know, this giant, we're just going to all play along kind of a thing. And, and even after things came out, even after his personal history was made public, he still kept insisting that he was a Native American. And so he really, until the time he died, he was wearing the, you know, braided wig and the, the headdress and the moccasins. And he talked about his connection to the great spirit. He just kept playing the role, even though everybody knew he was full-blooded Italian. He probably should have been in movies with, like, James Cagney playing like a mobster instead of, like, you know, alongside of John Wayne playing an Indian. But he kept up the role. And the interesting thing is, the kind of crazy thing is, he, he, he looks Native American and he acted Native American and everybody in the United States of America identified him as Native American, but he wasn't. 
Now, you contrast that with some of the Cherokee Indian identification cards that you're going to see out there. Here's, a, here's one Cherokee Nation card. Does that guy look Native American to you? Probably not. Here's another one. Does this woman look Native American? Does she look Cherokee to you? you know, not, not terribly, you know, but, but they're not faking it. You know, I'm, I'm actually part Indian. I don't know how much, but I know that I am. My nephew has a Cherokee Nation identification card. That's my nephew who is Cherokee. Does, okay, honestly, you're not going to hurt my feelings. Does he look Cherokee to you? I know. He looks Navajo, right? Uh, no, no, actually, you wouldn't think, you wouldn't go up to a guy like this on the street and say, hey, I'm really sorry what the government did to your buffalo, but I'm with, you know, I'm on the side of Kevin Costner, please forgive him. You're not going to do that because he doesn't look Navajo, doesn't look Cherokee, doesn't look like a Native American at all, but he is. Now, the question that I want to pose to you is, okay, so how do you, how do you d- determine if you're Cherokee or not? You, if you're feeling it, you act it, your understanding of the culture. Can you just up and say, well, I feel it, I am it, but so that I, therefore I am. Who gets to determine who says, I mean, who gets to determine if you're Cherokee or not? Here, here's, here's my suggestion. The Cherokee nation gets to determine your identity. Now, here's the, the other question. This is a little bit more relevant to most of us here. When it comes to being a Jesus person, are there some identifying characteristics or qualities? Can you just say, I'm a Jesus person just because you say so, you feel it, or other people around you kind of assume that you are? Who gets to say you're a Jesus person? Who gets to make that call? I'm going to make a a suggestion here. It's kind of radical. Jesus. Jesus does. And, And so today we're coming to a text where Jesus makes it clear who a Jesus person is. Now, before we get into too much of the thickness of this, look, I just want to affirm to you that a person becomes a Jesus person by faith in his grace, by trusting in Jesus, by receiving him, by allowing what Jesus has done on the cross to be applied to you by placing your faith in him and his finished work. That's how you become a Christian. But when, when it comes to, you know, identifying There are some characteristics or qualities that come out of this faith-grace relationship that ought to be obvious to everybody. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. There are some qualities or characteristics that ought to be true of every Jesus person. Now with that, let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. The text this morning is Luke chapter 8, verses 16 through 21. Jesus is saying this. He says, no one after lighting a lamp covers it with a basket or puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see its light. For nothing is concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known and brought to light. Therefore, take care how you listen. For whoever has, to him will be given more, and whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away from him. Then his mother and brothers came to him and said, but, uh, came to him, but they could not meet with him because of the crowd. He was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. But he replied to them, my mother and my brothers are those who do and hear the word of God. May God bless the redeems of his word. You may be seated. Now, we're just going to jump right into this real quickly. How can you tell... 
you know, beyond a shadow of doubt, how can you know, be for sure that you're a Jesus person? And the first thing is you are not satisfied to relax in the light when there are so many in the darkness. Okay, Jesus starts out, nobody lights their lamp and puts a basket over it or puts it under bed. Instead, they put it on its stand so that everyone who comes in can see its light. Okay. It would be really foolish to light a lamp. And you know how lamps were. They're like oil and, and you, you, there'd be a wick and it would burn. And it's almost like a candle. You could put it up high. You could put it down on the ground. You could put it under a bushel basket if you wanted to. Fine, you can move it around. But it would be really silly to light a lamp, put it on the floor, and then cover it up because that's not the purpose of a lamp. To do that is understand, misunderstanding the nature or the place or the purpose of a lamp. It'd be kind of like if you got a treadmill or a Peloton or a a weight set and you put it out in your garage and you never used it, which that doesn't make sense to anybody here. And some of you say, well, that makes sense to me, but that's okay. That's another message altogether. But if you know what something's for, you use it for that particular purpose. Otherwise, why would you even have it? Why would you even mess with it? And, And what Jesus is saying is there's a certain use for a lamp. Now, if you put the lamp under a basket or you put it under the bed, you can imagine this like when you had a flashlight under, you know, your covers at night or something like that as a kid or maybe in your tent. Inside that enclosed space, that light feels very bright. Like you can just warm up and it's glowing. But that's not where the light is supposed to be in enclosed space. In fact, if the lamp is happy, just enjoying its own enlightenment, that even in the midst of the light, the lamp doesn't understand the lamp's purpose. This is kind of crazy how this works. The lamp is actually in the middle of all this light, and yet simultaneously it can be rejecting its own purpose. Jesus says that's how, that's how it can be. This is crazy, but it, and it should be this way, but people do light a lamp and put it under the bed and put it under a basket and just... It's a little contained piece of light. Now, when Jesus says, you need to take that lamp and put it on a stand, what is he getting at? What's that word picture for? What's the metaphor? A lot of people will very quickly and naturally think, and I think rightly so, that when Jesus is talking about setting the lamp on its stand, he is getting at, hey, you disciples need to shed light into this dark world. Jesus makes this very plain in the Sermon on the Mount when, when he says this is over in Matthew chapter 5. He says, no one, you know, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Instead, they set it on a stand so it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, and here's, here's the real clarity here. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before people. Why? So that they would see your good deeds and give praise to your Father in heaven. Give glory to God. So there is a clear teaching in the scripture that we are to hold up the light of Christ in such a way, not for our own benefit, but so as to push back the darkness in the world around us. This is the call of every Christian. In fact, the way that Jesus puts it here in Matthew is he says, look, it's not just that you have the light. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You you are the light of the world. If you're not shining your light into the darkness, you're not the light that I have actually made you to be. You don't understand your calling. There's something about you and something about me that if we are Jesus' people, we're going to be very concerned about shining the light out into the darkness and not just concerned about enjoying our own enlightenment. 
Because if all you did and if all I did was enjoy your own enlightenment, you really don't understand the nature of a lamp. You don't understand the nature of your calling. Now, you know, some of the things that we can see so clearly in others, we have a hard time seeing in ourselves. And so when it comes to missionaries, we always think, oh, yeah, yeah, they're out there in the world and they're shining in, in the dark spaces. That's what missionaries do. I came across this wonderful story very recently, just a couple of weeks ago, because when I was thinking about, you know, children and Christians protecting children, I came across this interesting story of, uh, of a place called the Land of Twins. It's, uh, I don't know, has anybody heard this before? The Land of Twins. This is a location in southwest Nigeria. And the reason it's called the Land of Twins is because for some reason, the majority of families in that particular region have twins. It's very odd. And uh, scientists kind of guessed that, well, maybe it's because they eat so many yams. And so there is a connection apparently between eating yams and uh, reproductive health. Now, I told people in the first service, hey, if you don't want to have any more kids, stay away from the yams. Uh, I don't know that it's that strong. That's the best anybody could come up with. But then somebody started doing some history on the region, and they said, no, there's, there's actually an explanation. It has to do with a Scottish missionary who ministered there in the pre-colonial days. Okay? There was a time in that region, uh, the Calabar region with the Calabar River, where the, the natives in the area believed and believed wrongly that if a person had twins, if a woman had twins, it's because she had been with two different men. So there was that stigma. And then there was also, I know, it's really, really negative. And then on top of that, twins were deemed to be a bad omen. And so when women would have their twins, the twins were executed to punish the mother and, the, and whoever had the babies with the mother. And so as to excommunicate the mother, that after the mother's twins were killed, the mother would be sent out to the jungle to fend for herself. You want to avoid the bad omen and you want to avoid that level of immorality. Well, there, there was a missionary, Mary Slesser was her name. She was there. Her, her dates are like mid, like 1848 through 1914, that, that range, okay? So she's there in the Calabar region, and she's ministering the gospel up and down, meeting people's needs physically and emotionally and spiritually. And, and she witnesses this horrific ritual. And, of course, if you were in her shoes, a single Scottish woman ministering in that kind of a violent, dark situation, you'd probably be tempted to go back to Scotland. Because in, in that region, there were lions and leopards and vipers and cobras. And in Scotland, you just got Nessie and unicorns. And, and so she's there, and it's real murderous, and she's putting her life on the line, and she's saving twins. She's saving infants, and she's saving mothers, and she's bringing about change to the culture. So that because of her influence... Now you've got more twins, and the more twins are having twins, and that's why it's now called the land of the twins, because one woman put herself in a dangerous situation and would not leave. Now we think about people like this, and we go, you know, that's what missionaries do. They shine the light in dark places, and they make sacrifices. That's what they do. Well, you know, what we expect as normal or or, I don't know, just expected with regards to missionaries, Jesus has that expectation of any of his Jesus people. When you have the light, you can't be satisfied to relax in the light because the light wasn't just meant for you. 
the lights come to you so that it can go through you into a dark situation. And I know that we always get a little bit confused about, well, what am I supposed to do in the middle of this? I mean, I'm not real good at, you know, I can't cold call and knock, 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 and I get nervous in telling the gospel. And look, you can pray for people, you can give to missions, you can improve with regards to your execution of making the gospel made known. But I just want you to know at a gut level, on a very personal, deep level, if, you, if you're good relaxing in the light and you don't care about those that are in darkness, that is out of step with a Jesus person. It really is. That's one thing that Jesus is letting us know. Like if you're a Jesus person, if you're with me, if you're in with me, you're not going to relax in the light. You're going to be concerned about the, those that are in darkness. Now there's a little bit more to it. Not, not only that, you are also as a Jesus person, going to be concerned about exposing the darkness in you to the light or exposing the light to the darkness in you. Now, when, as always, whenever Jesus teaches something, there is a thickness and a profundity that the more you get into, you, you go, wow, wow, wow. You know, every time when you meditate on the Scripture, you've got to try this sometime, read a Scripture and just meditate on it for 15 minutes, just that one verse, and things are going to pop out and things are going to pop out and I think there is more. I know that there's more to this verse than us, than us just being the conduit for the light of Christ to move out into the world. There is also implicit in this a call to respond to the light that we're given. To be sure, over in Luke chapter 1, verse 79, it's clear that when Jesus comes into the world, it says that he is the light that's come to the darkness. And it also talks about in chapter 2 about how Jesus would be a light unto the Gentiles. But in this passage itself, there is a demand to be responsive to the light that is given. It's not enough to simply give the light. You've got to respond to the light. The light comes to you as well as it comes to other people. Or put a little bit differently, you've got to be practicing what you're preaching. There, there is a call to be responsive uh, to what is given to you, to, to not cover up anything, to not have anything hidden because what is hidden is going to be revealed. What's covered is going to be uncovered. That's the way light works. And it ought to work in you that way and it ought to work in, in me in that way too. There is naturally going to be a, a repentance and a confession. Somebody put it like this. God, don't expect God to cover what you're not willing to uncover. There's going to be a repentance. Or, or, or put it a little bit differently, uh, Steve Green, who was a very prominent Christian artist, he used to say, look, I'm a recovering hypocrite, but at least I'm recovering. There's this constant need to apply the light to you. And there was a time in Christian history, and there are lots of churches around like this, and I think we're one of these churches, where it's just very routine, if not as natural as taking a breath, to confess and repent. And you do it on a daily basis. I'm actually in, involved, I'm doing, a, I have a devotional life, and I've got somebody that I'm accountable to, and his name is Don Garant. He, he wrote this discipleship material, and we, we're meeting every week. And I don't think that I'm necessarily learning anything, but on a weekly basis, I'm in the Word so as to get the Word into me, or I'm presenting my soul to Jesus to say, Lord, show me where it is that I need to adjust. It's just, it's just very natural. It used to be that on a regular basis, churches would come together. This was way back when. And on a weekly basis, they would just go through this exercise of repentance and confession and contrition. Let me give you an example of this. How many of you all have heard of Thomas Cranmer? Does that even ring a bell? He was the Archbishop of the Church of Can uh, Archbishop of Canterbury. He was the he was a, a leader in the Church of England during a time of uh, English Reformation. 
wrote this book of prayer in 1549. And the Anglican Church and the Episcopal Church has basically been using the book of prayer ever since. And so on a routine basis, on a weekly basis, they would come together and would do this liturgy that I'm about to read to you. In fact, after the first service, Mike and Dee Dee Leeds, who used to be Episcopalians, they said, yeah, when we were growing up with the Episcopalian Church, we did this every single Sunday. Okay, I want to just, I want to show you kind of what goes on sometimes. And I thought this is really good. Now, I want you to imagine this. Imagine that the priest is reading the book of prayer and you do this so frequently that you've memorized it. It's almost like the Lord's Prayer. You do it enough, it, it just becomes second nature to you. And imagine that in this liturgical service, you're, you're kneeling because they used to have kneeling boards. And, and so it was always the posture at this time of confession and repentance for everybody to be kneeling, which some people have asked me with regards to this whole rebranding thing, hey, what's next? You know, if we take, if we don't highlight the name Baptist, what are we going to do next? And I told people in the first service, well, here's what's next. Kneeling boards. Uh, well, I, no, I don't know if we're going to. Oh, we got a clap over there. Yeah, you know, actually, I like kneeling boards. They're, they're, they're pretty good as long as, as long as they're padded. Okay. Uh, but here, just imagine this. You're in a church. You're kneeling. And here's what the priest says. Dearly beloved brethren, the Scripture moveth us in sundry places to acknowledge and confess our manifold sins and wickedness, and that we should not dissemble nor cloak them before the face of Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, but confess them with the humble lowly, penitent, and obedient heart to the end that we may obtain forgiveness of the same by His infinite goodness and mercy. And, though, and although we ought at all times humbly to knowledge our sins before God, yet ought we most chiefly so to do when we assemble and meet together to render thanks for the great benefits that we have received at His hands to set forth His most worthy praise, to hear His most holy word, and to ask those things which be requisite and necessary as well for the body as the soul. Wherefore, I pray and beseech you, as many as be here present, to accompany me with a pure heart and humble voice unto the throne of the heavenly grace, saying after me. And at this point, okay, everybody's kneeling. Some of them are closing their eyes. Maybe they're reading if they're new to this. But here's what the whole congregation would say in unison. Almighty And most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against the holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou them, O God, which confess their faults. Restore thou them that be penitent, according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life. To the glory of thy holy name. Amen. That ought to be natural. You really shouldn't hesitate because when you're a Jesus person, you let the light flow through you to the darkness and you allow the light to flow in you into your darkness to bring a transformation. And when you are living in the light, when you're abiding in the light, when you're applying the light and the light is being applied through you to those around you, here's what naturally is going to occur. You're going to be growing in your personal knowledge of Jesus. 
Here's, here's how Jesus puts it. Therefore, take care how you listen. Why? For whoever has, to him will be given more, and whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away from him. Now, Jesus is clearly giving us a promise and a warning in this word. And the promise is to those of us who live in the light and walk in the light, there will be more enlightenment. Because the enlightenment is given not just for your intellectual joy or to have, you know, the light on your tongue or to have the light in your memory. The light is given to you to change you and to change the world around you. And so when you're living in the light and you're walking in the light, more will be given. But to those who do not have, even what they think they have will be taken away from them. It, it, you've probably heard the phrase, use it or lose it. That actually gets attributed to a neuroscientist, but I think it could probably be attributed to Jesus here, or apply or die. And, and just so that we're really clear on this, Jesus does, does say, for those who do not have, even what they think they have will be taken away from them. And the, the implication here is pretty clear. If you're not walking in the light, if the light is not moving through you and the light is not moving to you, if you're not bearing witness and you're not living life of repentance and confession and contrition and you're not growing in a personal relationship with Jesus, the reason is you have not. You know, so, sometimes we kind of wonder, well, what happened to that person? They, you know, they, came, they were involved a little bit and then they kind of fell away and... Faith that doesn't finish was fickle from the first. What Jesus is teaching in this particular moment is if it, if it becomes less and less and it gets taken away, well, you never had it in the first place. Because if you've received the word, if the light has come into you, more will be given. More is going to be given. You're going to grow in a personal relationship with him. That brings us to the fourth thing, which, which Jesus says with incredible clarity here. A Jesus person is someone who hears and does the Word of God. The, the emphasis here is, listen, when you know who you're dealing with, when you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, when He is who you know Him to be as the glorious, gracious Savior who has graciously forgiven you and continues to bless you, you're going to care about what He has to say and you're going to comply with what He has to say. Because that's how it works in a, in a relationship with Jesus when you have received who he is. I love the story about these three guys who go hunting together. It's a pastor and a lawyer and a doctor. And they're hunting and out jumps this buck. And it's a huge buck. And so they all shoot at the same time. The buck goes down, but then they have this debate about who took the buck down. And so they run over the buck. They check it out to see how big it is. And they still can't figure out who shot the buck. Well, a few minutes later, a game warden comes by. He sees them arguing and he says, what's going on? And the, and the doctor says, well, we shot this buck, but we can't determine who killed it. And so the game warden looks at the buck, uh, figures out within about, I don't know, five seconds who shot the buck and said, oh, it was the pastor who shot the buck. And the lawyer, he says, well, how do you know? How do you know it was the pastor? And he says, well, that was easy. The bullet went in one ear and out the other. Now, okay, that's kind of a joke on, on pastors, okay, but it does kind of raise the question with regards to our relationship with Jesus. How am I doing with Jesus? Is it in one ear and out the other? Am I, am, I, am I careful to listen to him? Do I care to hear what Jesus has to say? And the reason I care what he has to say is because I want to comply with what he has to say. And the reason I want to comply with what he has to say is because I want to please my Lord. 
because he's my Lord. Um, you know, Gina, just a few days ago, went up to Colorado. My parents have a, have a place up there. It's really nice. And she's going to be there until August 4th. And, and I know you're thinking, well, good grief. Who wants to go to Colorado and enjoy incredible weather when she could be here in Texas at 105 in the afternoons and, and, and to be away from you, Ernest, for almost two months? I can't imagine, right? That's your response, right? I mean, how could she be away from me for that long? But I'll go up there for a couple of times up there and uh, I'm going to enjoy her company. But I think she's having a good time. There's going to be her, her you know, Nathan's going to go up there and Shelby's going to go up there and her brothers and sisters are going to go up there and they're going to have a good time and that's all good. But for me, I'm back here. Now, I love my wife and I do miss her, but you know what I found out really, really quickly since she's been gone is the things around the house that I don't really enjoy doing that much, I really, really don't enjoy doing them now. You know why? Because Jean is not a part of it. Like, you know, when I clear the table, I want her to notice. Wow, Ernest, you cleared the table. Oh, look at, look at your muscles as you carry out the trash. You know, I mean, like, Wow, thanks for mowing the yard. It's been two weeks, but thank you. You know, I mean, I don't know. There, there's something about her being around that makes the things that I don't enjoy doing more enjoyable. So now, and we, we share duties. I mean, that's how it is. She works. I work. We both work. And so if she cooks, I clean. If I cook, she cleans. And we do laundry together and I'll do the yard and she'll feed the dog. You know, we split labor. We do stuff together. I'm going to do the same things. I got half as much laundry, half as much dishes, half as much cooking. But I hate it now. You know why? Because she's not around. Because now I'm just doing it for me. It's no fun to do these things for me. It's more fun, even though I don't enjoy them, when she's around. You know why? Because I love her. You know? Like, I want to make the bed to make her happy. I want to clean the dishes to make her happy. If it's just me, it's like, well, you know, that's how it is with Jesus. Some of the duties that we have, we know they're best for us. You know, do this, don't do that. Yeah, 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 I know, I know. That's a better way to live my life. But it's so much more tolerable and even fun to do the things you ought to do when you're not doing it for you, when you're doing it for Him. And when you know what it is that your spouse needs you to do, you're glad to do it, and that's why you want to know what it is they want you to do. Because it gives you an opportunity to communicate affection and love. Hey, honey, I need you to run this, you know, letter by the post office. I need you to pick up something on the way home. And yeah, yeah, it's a chore, but I'm glad to know because I'm glad to do because I have a relationship with her that is meaningful. And when you have a relationship with Jesus, you ought to care about what he says because you want to comply with what he says because you know he loves you and you want to love him back. Jesus talks about the appropriate responses about not just being a hearer of the word only, but a hearer and a doer in the previous parable. This is the same chapter. Luke chapter 8 is the chapter where Jesus tells this rather famous parable called the parable of the sower. Remember it? I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but he says, here's, here's how it works. I'm going to give my word to you and some of you, you're, it's just going to bounce off the ground and you're not going to respond at all. And some of you, I'm going to give you my word I'm going to give you the message, and it's going, to, it's going to seem like it's going to take hold, but then trials and tribulations come along, and you just fall away. 
And then some of you, Jesus is letting them know, some of you, you're going to hear the word, and it looks like it's okay, but then the riches of life and the cares of this world are going to choke it out, and you're gonna, it's going to bounce off your ears, or it's, you're going to fall away, and you're going to fall away. But then there are some people who, with a good, pure heart, are going to receive the word, and they're going to hold on to it, and it's going to produce fruit. Those people who receive the word and hold on to it, those people who are living in the light, those are the Jesus people, the ones who hear and do. And it's not about works. It's not about obligation. It's about being in a love relationship. So you have to ask again, is, this, is my thing with Jesus going in one ear and out the other? Do I hear him only when I have to? Or am I anxious to listen to him because I'm anxious to comply with him because I love him? That's a Jesus person. There's, there's a, a fifth thing, and it's really, really obvious, and I don't want to miss this, and that is, when, look, when you're a Jesus person, let's put the next point up there, you know other believers as true family. Okay, Jesus' mother and brothers come by. They want to talk to him. They're waiting for him, and Jesus says, who's, who's my mother and brothers? My mother and my brothers are those who hear and do uh, the Word of God. Now, before we get to the application, I want this to sink in because this, this is really important. Jesus had brothers and sisters and a mother, by the way. And, and we know that, not just from this passage. Over in Matthew chapter uh, 13, verse 55, it talks about Jesus' brothers, and they have names. It's like James, uh, James, who's the next one? I know Simon and Judas were two of them. There's a third one in there. You can look it up. He had a name. James and Joseph. James, Joseph. Judas, uh, Simon and Judas. Thanks. I appreciate the correction from the floor over there. We'll talk later, Jonathan. Hey, good for you, man. I mean, that's amazing that you knew that. I'm not going to play you in Bible trivia, at least not in public. Uh, But then over in uh, chapter, chapter 13, verse 56, the very next verse, it talks about him having two sisters. So we know he had four brothers and two half sisters, their name in, in that passage. And in the Catholic Church, they said, no, 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 Jesus doesn't have any half-brothers and half-sisters because Mary was the eternal virgin, okay? And so they would go to these passages and say, oh, no, no, they weren't brothers and sisters, they were cousins, but that's not the word that's used there. Uh, and we just can't imagine that Mary would ever be with any, anybody other than, you know, like nobody. And so others kind of came along and said, well, maybe they weren't cousins, maybe Joseph was married before he was married to Mary, and so Jesus had four older half-brothers and four older half-sisters, and it's like, no, 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 that doesn't work either uh, because if he had four older brothers, then Jesus wouldn't be the eldest, which means he would not be the heir to the throne of David. So there's all kind of problems. The reason I'm sweating all of this out is so that you will know. Jesus had biological family, mom, brothers, sisters. And this is at a time when family was everything. You know, this is back in the day when everybody, you know, they were married, so death do them part. And the, the kids were educated at home, so that was tight. And then they would work the family business, which was tight. And then you, your nuclear family was with the other nuclear family. And so your aunts and uncles, you didn't just know them through Facebook. You, you knew them because they were like neighbors. And so there was family and the nuclear family. It was till death to us part. And, and basically in that culture, you were your family. Your family was you. So it's in that context that Jesus says with his mom and brothers standing outside. My mom and my brothers are those who hear and do the word of God. This is profound. 
I want to give you a couple of implications here. First off, if you hear Jesus saying that spiritual relations supersede biological ones, you put an exclamation point on that. Now, I don't mean that you don't have obligations to your biological or adopted children and your husbands and your wives and stuff. That's still there. But when we talk about how we are Christian family, like if you're a Christian, you're in the family of God, I, I, don't, I want you to know that sometimes we kind of go, oh, yeah, yeah, there's family and then there's family. But here's how Jesus looked at it. There's family and then there's family. What I'm saying is you're not just my brothers and sisters in the Lord. As Jesus would put it, it's like, you're family. And the person next to you or seated across, they're your brother, they're your sister. You might think of them as, as an aunt and an uncle, but they're family, family. And what that means is not just within this particular church or even this particular dom- denomination. When it comes to cross-denomination, when you're dealing with somebody who's a believer, they're family, family. And so it really, when you start thinking of it like that, mistreating someone in the family just becomes all the more unthinkable because if you, if you wouldn't talk that way or act that way toward a brother or sister, how much more so somebody who is a child of God And this is the thing that that gets me or triggers me as much as anything when I hear stuff about, you know, abuse and cover-up. That is so not family. And when I see people doing the high horse or condescension over denominational lines, and I'm, I'm happy with this denomination. I would not choose another denomination. This, this is the no, denomination of my choice, just so you're, you're clear on this. But when I see any kind of condescension or division along denominational lines, it's like that's not... That's not how it is with family. And when a family member hurts, you ought to hurt with them. And you ought to feel the loss. You know, Mark and Christy are at another church in, in, in uh, Illinois. And they're there in a view of the call. And I'm sure it's going to go well. And, and I know that Christy's real family family. She's really my sister. But I'm going to encourage her that even though Mark and Drew are moving, she should stay here in Georgetown. Because we're fam- No, I'm not going to do that. I know she's moving. And so I feel the loss because she's a, she's a sister. You, you should feel that. It's a good thing to be in the family of God. Now, some of you are just real quickly, you're going to go, okay, okay. Th- those are the marks and stuff, but how do I become a Jesus person? Well, like I had mentioned at the beginning, I'm going to say it again. You become a Jesus person by simply accepting Jesus. Okay, there's implications that happen when you receive the word. You, you grow, there's fruit, but it's all about the word that's given to you. And Jesus Christ is the word of God. Here's how Jesus, here's how John puts it over in First John. He says, he came to those, Jesus came to those that were his own. He came to his own family. The Jews, you might even say even his brothers and sisters rejected him until after the resurrection. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. But to as many as received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or human decision or husband's will but born of God. How do you become born of God? How do you get into the family? You just receive Jesus. You believe, you receive. And when you receive the word, if you're that soil that just takes it, and then there's fruit that's born, well, that's fantastic. The seed, the gospel, gets all the credit because it's just the seed that grows. You're just the place where it happens to grow. But if you receive the word, here's what will happen to you. You're going to get to know Jesus better. You're going to get to know other believers as, as family, as brothers and sisters in a way that maybe you didn't even have those experiences within your own family. I was talking to the 
to the staff this last week, it was on Monday, and I asked them about all this family stuff. Because I don't know what it's like to have a family member who's not a believer. My parents are believers. My brother's a believer. It's just that's always been the experience for me. But for those who have had people in the family who were not believers, you, the, Christy had said this, others had said this. It's like it is amazing how when somebody is a believer, there is a connection on a deep level that really does surpass. So you know they're there for you. They're, not, they're, they're in your corner, that they understand in ways that the natural person does not. When you receive the word, you get family, you get Jesus, you get God, you get eternity, you get a growing personal relationship with Jesus. You get more and more enlightenment as you walk in the light so as to share it with other people whose lives are being changed as as your life is being changed. But on the downside, as you're repenting and the light comes to you, I will tell you this, there's there's a downside. Your heart will break for people in a way that it didn't before. You know what that is? That is the compassion of Christ. That's Jesus in you. So if you can take the downside of growing in love, I want to strongly encourage you uh, to receive Jesus. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Nobody looking around. But if you're here this morning, you say, you know, I, I do know that I've sinned. I've fallen short. I haven't loved God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I haven't loved my neighbor as myself. And there's something in me that needs to be fixed. And I, I, I want to be in the family of God. I want to be a Jesus person. I want to receive him. I, I think the fruit that comes from it is good. Well, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. You just simply say this to the Lord. Dear Lord, I know that I've sinned. I've fallen short. I haven't loved as I, as I should. And I have not receive your love as I should and I want to repent of that I want to turn from that I know I need forgiveness of my sins and I know who's my forgiver that would be Jesus and so God right now I want to receive Christ as my Savior and my Lord the one who came lived the life I should have lived died the death I should have died so that I would not just be forgiven but actually brought in all the way in to the family of God Thank you, God, for saving me. Thank you for loving me. And I just want to grow in in grace as I walk in the light day by day. In Jesus' name.